Welcome to Fret Not with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Not is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, the originator of the original nylon string, my string of choice, and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Evan Toucher, guitarist, entrepreneur, one of the first people pioneering social media in the guitar sphere, and a longtime friend of mine. This was a really fascinating conversation that I couldn't bear to cut down to 30 minutes, so I've got a slightly longer episode. If you enjoyed the format, let me know on Instagram, at Rosie Bennett Guitar. So probably the most important lesson to me, at least one that's been valuable to me over time, uh, is about focus and, and how focus is our most valuable asset. Uh, and, and this door started opening for me uh, when I started learning about studying an instrument at a serious level in my undergraduate and learning about how all of these hours I was spending practicing were not optimum at all. And when I started seeing how some of my peers and colleagues that were performing and, and learning at, at such a high rate mm-hmm. and at a high level, I started adapting to this, right? I started practicing a better way and I was working with my teacher at the time and learning from my friends. Uh, but then I started to question like, how many other aspects of life am I just doing wrong, right? Because intuitively I was doing all the right things in my mind, right? I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm getting better all the time because I learned another song. I learned another piece, whatever the situation was. But the reality mm-hmm. was that so much of it was <laughs> just thrown away. So I would say my first, my undergraduate, my master's, it was all about optimizing and focus. And I was hungry for resources. And I started learning lots of things from meditation and practice of mindfulness, uh, mm-hmm. reading books. Um, one that stuck out to me was uh, Peak by Anders Ericsson. He's, he was actually a professor at Florida State University. Uh, where I started my studies, all of these things started to teach me that like focus penetrates all aspects mm-hmm. of our lives. And if you can learn to be more optimum and deliberate and mindful about the things that you do, then you see changes not only in your practice, but in the way that you treat others, the way you respond to negative stimuli and positive stimuli too, right? It's, uh, it was transformative for me. Hmm. I think that's fascinating. But practicing optimally, I think it's something we do, like as a term, we throw it around a lot. But what yeah. does that mean to you? Because I think it's quite personal where you are sort of losing time. Absolutely. Well, like you said, it is it is a really blanket term, but mindfully practicing, meaning acknowledging what it is that you're trying to improve. Mm-hmm. And not just picking up the guitar and going, mm-hmm. right? That is the biggest thing. I think that's the, that's the start of it for me. But having clear goals, clear small goals, not like, well, next year I want to win this huge competition, yeah. you know. <laughs> but having small goals that are achievable um, 
and, and, you know, obviously with the guidance of, of your teacher at the time, if, if you have one, um, that, uh, those, those little goals are the, um, is the most important part of the practice routine because otherwise that's what leads to the less mindful things. That's the, that's the scrolling down on your phone or mindlessly refreshing things mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, just going on to the next video on YouTube. That's the practice equivalent of it to me. So having the clear goal set out so that you can do other things in your life, mm-hmm. you know, so that you can exercise, so that you can, so that you can learn other things about music than just right there at the guitar. That's, that's the heart of it for me. Mm. It's really fascinating. I've been thinking about practice a lot recently. I follow um, a few fitness people on Instagram. And one thing one of these girls says, she says, never fail twice. And I always thought, oh, that's really lovely if you're doing running or if you're lifting weights. That's a good attitude. But for music, it's arbitrary. This was my thought. I always thought it was completely useless. And then I sat down one day and I was thinking, actually, you know what? That's not so useless because there's no reason why I should make a mistake twice in a row. All that's happened is I haven't diagnosed the problem or I haven't paid any attention to fixing anything. With the um, never make the same mistake twice, uh, it becomes infinitely more apparent, I'm sure, with you too, um, when you're teaching and you see students make that mistake a few times mm-hmm. in a row and you're just like, oh, I this is something I used to do. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, or obviously still do, but this is something that I used to do and not even recognize mm-hmm. that I was doing, you know, just, trying the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. It, it actually sort of reminds me of a experiment that I, I wish I would follow through with that maybe, maybe it's a little uh, out there, but it, it would be so interesting if you could um, set up some session where you have one person watching you practice and there is some huge reward or, you know, maybe there's these times we're studying with Renee. Do you remember the times he would say, I'll give you $50 if yeah. you can play that better? Obviously, it's super impossible for them to play it absolutely perfectly. Anyone to play any piece absolutely perfectly. But what would be really interesting would be if there was this huge sum of a reward for someone, if they were able to play through a piece start to finish, no matter the speed, no matter if it's in time, but playing all the notes without buzz and, you know, definitely with clarity and mm. everything, no matter the speed, but if they can go from start to finish, mm-hmm. then there's this huge sum of reward. Well, it just tests the patience aspect of things because it's very, very easily possible um, if the focus is there, even if it takes you 30 hours to play through that piece once, right? Mm. Like my pinky is on the F it is in a good position. Now I'm going to re- move my eye finger to the second string. Okay, my finger's on the string. My pinky is there. Now I'm going to make a sound. Mm-hmm. Okay, that qualifies as you can move to the next note. That, I right? think, is really, it's valuable advice because I think what we don't realize a lot of the time is that our mental model of practice is always play something through, see what status it's already at, and then troubleshoot. Right. We don't do any preventative work, usually. Yeah, Even exactly. having knowledge of that, I'll still sit at the instrument and play something through to see where the problems are. 
instead of thinking, you know what, I know I'm shifting here before making that mistake, before missing the note, thinking, actually, you know what, I might miss that. And I think it's something really interesting. I think it would be really useful for kids or for anybody who's starting learning. You know, we should have exercises because actually, if I look at a piece of music for me or for a student, I already know where I'm going to make mistakes. And I already know why. So why do I keep sitting down to play this piece and I I still just wait to see if I'll make the mistake? Because I definitely will make it on stage, even if it hasn't showed up in my practice. Yeah. It's crazy. And that's all to do with focus. And actually, I think we do neglect that. We don't train our brain to be able to cope with more load. Yeah. Just kind of allostatic load. How many things can you add into the mix and still keep the train running on the tracks? You can train being more focused. Yes, it is so much something that you can train. And actually, I think in reality, it's the only thing we truly can train is our mind, mm-hmm. right? It's like we we imagine all these things to still be separate entities, our bodies and all of this. I mean, it, it is all within our mind. And practicing meditation, mindfulness, learning about the mind, it's all things that can affect and penetrate all parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved, at least my thought about it and my, the lesson I've taken from it, because in the beginning it was just like, whoa, I was almost wasting my time on the guitar. And then everything else from then has been like, wow, this has like uh, practicing you know, con- controlling and recognizing um, your instincts mm-hmm. it ha- has just been so important mm. to me. People, you probably get this a lot with being online as well. The questions mm. are pretty much the same. How can I right. practice better? How can I improve my technique? How can I stop being nervous before I walk on stage? How can I play well in my lesson when I can play it in my bedroom, but as soon as I sit down in front yeah. of my teacher, I can't play it. And all of this stuff is basically training the same thing. It's training focus, it's training how to be aware because I'm sure that anyone who's done a performance has had the experience, especially having a first performance. You don't know what to expect. You sit in your bedroom, you practice, you think, yeah, I can play this. And then you walk on stage and there's this new level of attention that you're giving. And it's in those moments that you suddenly realize, hmm, maybe I don't know what that first note is, or hmm, maybe I don't know how the second section starts. (laughs) Yeah, I, I love that you said it's the attention that you're giving. That's, that's exactly right. It's not the attention that you're getting. Mm-hmm. It's the attention you're giving. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, it's, it's funny you mention about the number one questions, you know, you get about practice or whatever. Definitely for me, the number one question, whether it's a comment or a live stream, whatever it is, uh, an email someone sends, it's about performance anxiety. And mm-hmm. that is why I'm so passionate about this mindfulness and focus, because I remember the realization that I had about performing. And, uh, and this was with, you know, talks with my professor, Bruce Holzman at the time, uh, that so much of it was just that your expectation was that you want to go on stage and like play perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling him, I remember saying like, I just want to be able to go on the, he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to be able to go on the stage and, and kill the performance, you know, go up and, and he's like, then that's your problem. Right? Like, mm-hmm you that's that's your desire but it's not being reflected 
in your practice. And the, the, the thing that I always say to people with that question about how, how to be less nervous on stage and how to c- control that anxiety is that you have to create a realistic expectation for how you're going to perform. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even necessarily mean performing for others more. Of course, that's the number one, the best practice, right? Performing for other people, mm-hmm. maybe, but per- performing for yourself and doing the whole thing where you bring a chair into another room, you unpack your guitar, you warm up for five minutes, and then you go sit in there and you record your performance start to finish. There is no stopping mm-hmm. that every time I do that, I finish thinking, wow, I am not very good at this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that, that was pretty bad. <laughs> and that's that every time that first time happens before, you know, I'm preparing a new program or preparing mm-hmm. a new piece. That is so important to level you out because the more times you do it, the better you feel about it. You practice, you know, now you know the areas to practice for sure and what pieces were weakest and mm-hmm. um, what parts were weakest. And then your confidence starts to build. I can do this for myself in this private environment and it's better now. You're probably mm-hmm. never going to think I'm going, this is insanely amazing. I'm going to go out. Right? It never reaches that expectation that I think a lot of us have in like the juvenile stage of performing. That's like, oh, it's going to go better than it ever has. We, we create this expectation at home where it's like, okay, it's probably going to be around this more or less. And as long as it's near that expectation, the nerves go away. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what book it is. It's one of those kind of old tropey ones, like the inner game of tennis. I don't know. I think it might even be that one (laughs) Um, where he talks about trying to control something and observing something and letting your body figure it out. And um, the other thing that he talks about is most people don't have any perception of whether that was good or not for you. So if you just play Mm -hmm. from beginning to end, the only thing you should be concerned about is having a good experience. And that sounds kind of, I think a lot of people are scared of saying things like that because it sounds a bit like witch doctory, hippie crystal stuff. Um, Actually, I think classical musicians are probably the most averse to anything to do with mindfulness, meditation. Right, well, I'll say I was on the side of like thinking meditation was just like this lofty word that didn't mean Mm. much. Mm-hmm. And I realized that my, you know, well, maybe when I first heard about meditation and as I continually heard about it, I thought it was just sitting around and trying to be at peace with yourself and trying to think about nothing. Mm-hmm. And I was so wrong about that, right? And in, in the practice of meditation, it's not about thinking about nothing. Mm-hmm. It's not about just being at peace. Um, it's, you know, it's obviously about a lot of things and I don't want to... Um, risk summing it up in the wrong way Uh, but it's different it's it's about listening noticing where your mind goes Mm -hmm. and then thinking why does it go there and then letting it go quickly Mm -hmm. and and it's it's a it's a practice right it's it's you can't start on uh grand overture you have to start on uh on on the studies and and the basic positioning yeah, indeed. I think it's like a kind of a plate spinning thing. I discovered something really interesting about memory recently that made me realize I've been practicing memory wrong my whole life. I've been listening to these um, lectures about memory because I've been trying to write an article about memory recently. Sure. And it's one of those things where you think it's something simple and you think you know what you're going to talk about. And then 
you dive down this rabbit hole of things that people obviously do. I mean, doctoral degrees in, and, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. people dedicate their whole lives to this. So obviously I wasn't expecting to understand everything immediately. But what I used to do is learn a piece from the music. And when I thought I could kind of take the stabilizers off and drive the bike without any help, I would say, OK, it's memorized. And that's it. And then I would kind of expect from myself that I could walk on stage and remember it. And I had all these problems with memory. And I would ask people and people would say to me, basically, just some people struggle with it. Some people don't. And I thought, oh, God, I'm just one of those people that struggles with it. That That's really rubbish for me. <laughs> um, and then recently looking into this thing, this guy said, he said, if someone tells you their name and that's all they tell you and they say to me, please remember my name I will remember that name and the next time I see them I'll probably remember it too and maybe for seven or eight maybe 10 20 30 years I'll still remember that name because I gave it focus to memorize it um, and he said only people who have some kind of deterioration in the brain will not be able to remember that and mm. then I thought oh actually that makes sense if I focus on what I'm actually memorizing and I do the classic thing, which when I try to remember somebody's name, again, this could be a singular experience, says, hi, my name's Brian. And I say, oh, hi, Brian. And then I think of a situation where I might forget it or I imagine another situation in the future where I see that person again. So there's this kind of immediate committing to being aware of it, not just hearing it, but listening to it and then committing it to long term memory, which doesn't go away. Yeah, that's a really interesting relationship you made because you could think of the name of a person as somewhat insignificant, right? Like it doesn't matter that much, but it is super meaningful to someone if you remember their name, right? Like you on passing, you, you see them again and you say, oh yeah, hi, Rosie, and good to see you again. You're like, oh, you remember my name. We only met once. Mm -hmm. it, it's something that seems insignificant because the conversation is truly what you remember, right? Like mm -hmm. if you had a, a full conversation and it was about something interesting, even if it was mundane, you'll remember that while you may not remember their name. Mm -hmm. So maybe that name remembering part is kind of like the fingering or the position mm -hmm. that you're at, right? And then the contents of it is like the harmony and the um, the sound of the melody and you know the way you're responding to it mm -hmm. and those two things together equal a complete package mm -hmm. like, yeah. uh, on the other hand if you're like oh i remember your name but what did we talk about that would be super awkward <laughs> yeah right? it's it's true and it it's all just really about different lapses in attention because for instance, you might remember that his name is Brian, but the next time you talk, you're not going to be able to repeat that conversation verbatim unless there was something right. about it that made you commit it to memory for a reason. And right. I think when we teach music, especially when we're teaching performance, we don't concentrate enough on, for instance, how the curriculum that kids are often receiving, like harmony and ear training, things like that, how those things link in to memory because if somebody said something to me in English and they asked me to remember it I could probably remember it if they repeated it well as many times as you're going to play a piece let's say that somebody sure. said uh, three minutes of text to me for a hundred hours let's go with that as a little okay. um, a ballpark figure I could I could say that I will remember that because you know you talk every day and that makes sense you compute it and memory and learning are 
basically the same thing. If we don't inter inter like twine these things and weave them into one big thing or something that we can synthesize, then what we end up doing is trying to recall something that would be as clear as, for instance, saying something to me for 100 hours in Arabic. And I might remember some sounds, but that's all I have to go on is the sounds. Right. I don't have anything else. And I think that's where we fall short right now with education. And actually, all the tools are out there because there's been so much research done around this, but we're just not yet applying it because it's not just hearing it loads of times and then trying to replicate it. It's learning it. So actually learning it, synthesizing it. What is that? And then that's, I would say, a third of the work because yeah. what you're doing on stage isn't playing something that's in front of you or play, you know, you have so many different things distracting you and interfering with your with your playing basically with your what your mind is thinking about which is going to be completely different on stage than it is in your bedroom so what you really need to do to practice memory and it's something that's just occurred to me recently and i found it amazing and then i learned like a two-hour program in in three weeks what you're practicing is forgetting it and you're practicing recall and that's mm. why it kind of i always knew that equation made sense of if you play for 10 hours straight you're much less likely to have learned something than if you play one hour for 10 days. Somehow it didn't, I didn't put two and two together, but now sure. that I've put two and two together that actually you don't get 10 hours if you do one hour every day, what you actually get is 240 hours, sure. 10 of which you're practicing recall, which is, and then the other sort of 23 in between you're practicing forgetting, which is really important. Wow. Yeah, now, now forgetting in the way of like, forgetting how to play it in that position and then like learning it in another position is that the type of thing yeah so you're practicing having your mind on something else which yeah obviously when you kind of don't make the connection between your fingers and your brain even if you have kind of made that connection but not really like synthesized what that means mm. it's really easy to think oh but i'll just concentrate on stage <laughs> um, right but if you've yeah. never practiced it then what would have been 80% or 90% of your attention going to what you're doing to then it being dropped to somewhere around 15% or 10% because the rest of you is thinking like, oh God, did I say something really stupid in that introduction? Or is that my teacher, my first teacher that I saw in the audience somewhere in the dark? Yeah. Like, you know, you're suddenly, you're like, someone's just chucked 20 plates at you and you have to try and spin them all whilst keeping yeah. the original plate spinning. <laughs> so either you yeah. have to learn, which is what meditation is so handy for, either you have to learn to immediately drop all of the other plates and keep your plate spinning, or you have to practice spinning more plates before you get on stage. Yeah, that's a really great way to tie it back into meditation, I think, because it reminds me of a misconception of meditation, mm -hmm. which is that you must be in a silent area to meditate mm -hmm. you know now of course maybe preferably most of the time it's nice to be in a in a quiet area but because you're in some loud environment where there's random stimuli happening doesn't mean you can't meditate in fact that's super important practice right it's mm -hmm. it's important like you mentioned to have someone coughing in the audience while you're trying to spin all these plates on stage um in the same way that that shouldn't that's not an important enough stimuli to throw you off of what you're doing. Yeah, and I think it's also about not just exterior factors, but interior as well. Because mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. so many of us don't realize 
how much noise is going on in our brains and it's fascinating I actually think that as a general you know when you when you first start your teachers give you these kind of inane bits of advice and they just say don't ask questions just do it I think one useful one for me it would be um, for students to engage in some kind of meditation like three minutes I'm not asking much from you three minutes before you start playing in silence because Silence actually is terrifying. Um, And it's, you know, sometimes I'll sit down to practice. If I've not got a lot of time, it's a bit like that. If you sharpen the saw and you spend one hour doing that, it'll only take you an hour to cut down the tree. Whereas if you just try and cut the tree down for three hours, you know, you'll save yourself time if you prepare better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, if I sit down to practice, I can... I can do what I would usually do in 20 minutes in three minutes if I spend three minutes quietening my brain and focusing on what I'm going to do. And often, even though I know this, I don't. And my playing suffers from that because I'll be listening to a podcast and then... Take that into the practice room. I'll be practicing some passage and... 40% of my brain will be focusing on this ridiculous run that I'm doing in the left hand. And 60% of my brain will be kind of thinking about what Miriam Margolis said in her episode of Happy Place, you know? So, and then when I'm on stage, 100% of my attention is then on that run and not on Miriam Margolis. But unfortunately, what I've done is encoded in my brain that in order to succeed in this, the correct amount of attention is 40% on my own playing and 60% on Miriam Margolis. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're you're so right. And um, we're we're ignoring like a big part of a a problem, which is not just that you take that, 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 it's so common to take what's going on elsewhere in your life into like that practice session. But also the fact that so many people practice with music or like something playing on YouTube or something. It's been a struggle of mine. I I, I noticed that if I'm trying to really accomplish something and things get Mm -hmm. stressful, sometimes I'll end up having something else going on. I'll have a, be maintaining a conversation a little bit. I'll be checking on my phone to see, you know, what my friend said to me and, uh, making plans for later, it, it it all draws away from our attention. And sometimes it's huge problems that people have to address below like this deep level that even you're talking about here and that we're, we're having a discussion mm-hmm. about. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, it's crazy. And it is something that I think as musicians, you're sort of already a little bit on your way towards is obviously if you can think of one goal in your life, it should be to master yourself. Yeah. And nothing is usually, you know, we talk a lot about that, the coughing and the talking. And I think mm-hmm. really what we're doing is trying to get out of the fact that we are our biggest saboteurs. Yeah. The person who's out to get you the most is you. <laughs> yeah. And it comes up on stage because there's a, yeah, it's just that attention to detail that you just don't, have in the rest of your life you you said one of the most common questions that people ask mm-hmm. is about performance anxiety and that and i echoed that I, I think that's the most common question i get as well and that idea of going into a room to practice your performance and mm-hmm. doing the one take thing it brings you so much closer to 
the realities that you're very seldom seeing. Like, obviously, when you play a concert and it goes terribly or you have a performance and it goes terribly, that's a big dose of reality and you'll probably react to that. You're not going to want to do it Mm. again. But if you have that dose of reality so often, it guides your practice in a way that like none of these like guru like tips like you mentioned that sometimes mm-hmm. people give can touch. You know, those those can't touch the 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 dose of reality that you can get by performing for yourself in in this manner of, you know, ob- observing and listening to yourself. Mm. I think necessity guided practice is a really good way of describing that and that word reminds me of something that Rene um, who we both Mm. studied with something he used to say which was you know he'd give this this talk and he'd say you know the reason the Cuban school exists is because we had to eat and we had to get out and and in a way that was inspiring and it made you want to work more in a way i suppose it, it also came with a little dose of guilt on the side um yeah one thing that that story kind of that it means for me now as opposed to what it meant for me before i realized that wanting it and being desperate to play well on stage and really feeling like you know i would give anything to do well on this one occasion. Um, that isn't what he meant by mm-hmm. being driven by necessity. Right. I think the idea that it's not having the necessity to do it and then doing it and that being the product, but the idea of maybe not even needing it, but then performing once and discovering what you need, what you needed to do. If in an ideal world you could go back, what would the thing be? Would you maybe turn to that first page and say to yourself, it's a D, it starts on a D. Right. Maybe that was all you needed to like improve your concert experience by a hundred percent because you just couldn't remember the first note, so you walked off stage. You know, like if you could go back, what would it be? And then the next time you're gonna play that piece, you're never gonna forget that note again ever because you have now had a traumatic experience i think that idea the necessity driven but not necessity as a person not if i don't do this my parents or my teacher will be mad at me or i will be disappointed that's not necessity driven practice yeah yeah necessity driven practice rather than like some necessity driven performance right necessity driven performance is super scary it's like competition right that's like what competition is what is a lesson that you would like to impart? You know, probably that there's so many aspects of this career that we're pursuing that we have to foster love for, or at least we have to explore mm-hmm. it as an option. It, it, it changes so much over time as well, right? Like in the beginning of playing guitar, right? There's only a couple of mm-hmm. things that you have to love doing, right? You have to love improving and you have to love to practice and fall in love with the instrument and with the music around you. And, um, but, but as time goes on, there's so much that you have to look at in a positive light and you have to figure out how to work it into your life in a way that's not negative. And, and you have to explore and be open to so many different things. Um, because some of those things are really awesome, right? Like, you know, as, as I've grown in this short little career, I've noticed that so many of my colleagues find totally different passions in what they do. 
right? There's some that really focus on social media. There's some that focus on making video game music. There's some that focus on early childhood education. Uh, and obviously the list goes on and on. But as I learn from those passionate friends, I think, wow, actually that's super interesting. I, if I had the time to dive deep into that, I, I could see myself mm-hmm. falling in love mm-hmm. with doing that. And that there's, there's all of these things that you can, you can become passionate about if the right person introduces you to it or if you just spend a little bit of time mm-hmm. getting to know it. And actually, I think it equates to like a much more wider type of goalpost of, of, um, of success and, and that is that you, you don't think that you have to do this super narrow thing, like better than anyone in the world, but you think that you do what you love and you notice all of these options around you. And, and at least if, as I've gotten a little bit older and have, like I mentioned, I, I have these colleagues that I see doing all these different things. I, I think, wow, that is really interesting stuff. And, and I would love to explore mm. those paths one day. And that, I think it, it leads to less injury and, and disorder and, uh, and, and all the negative aspects and all the negative things that can happen in a music career. Um, and it leads to just more openness and creativity and um, ease of the mind, I'd say. Mm. I think that is, it's really interesting, um, this idea that actually when you start doing something like music, Plenty of people don't really know what you can do with it. And so it becomes this right. thing where you kind of, you think, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. You just keep going. Um, but until you explore, you don't really realize what's out there. And then often, if you keep doing it, at least this is what I felt, um, it feels a little bit like cheating on that solo performance career. Right. Um, when actually we have a lot of time, we can do a lot of stuff. You can make a career basically combining niches. This podcast is a manifestation of the fact that I love guitar, but I've always had this deep love of journalism and talking a lot. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, then just this last year has provided the opportunity to combine them, just smash them together. And, and it's created something that I think is really lovely and really valuable. And it can be really difficult when you first start out because it just goes back again to that thing of you don't even know what you don't know yet. Yeah. Well, when, when you and I started out playing guitar, the dreams that I'm sure you, me, and everyone else had around us was were of these like top performers that literally just performed, you know, so many, so many concerts a year, dozens and dozens of concerts a year. And the funny thing is the new generation now isn't going to see it the same, yeah. right? They're going to be open to so many other influences of people that combine like, like what you're doing, you know, that, that, that combine several aspects of the, um, of, of a music career. Mm. And also I'm sure as we've gotten over it for, at least for me, I have really respected the people that have combined several elements and still do the concerts. That's the thing you can, still do the concerts and almost everyone, I mean, we're talking about just a a handful of people that just do the concerts. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all noticed like, actually that is super difficult to just do concerts. I mean, financially, of course, but Mm -hmm. also performing and traveling that much, you know, maybe, maybe 20 to 30 concerts a year is better than a hundred and 120 concerts a year. That's ridiculous. You know, I don't think we realize that's not what we want when we're, 
when we're just starting. I think when we talk about it, we, we often say it like, you know, not many people do that. But it makes it sound as though not many people can manage to can do that. Can achieve that. Yeah, or can achieve yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember thinking like, oh, well, you know, obviously my goal is to be John Williams. But, but I understand. Yeah, that I, I might may not, not yeah. make it. And I, you know, I may have to not be a performer. It's like, whoa, it's not 100 concerts or 120 concerts mm-hmm. a year to do nothing. You know, it's there's so much in between and... I remember studying with Renee and seeing how much he was traveling. Yeah. And he's not doing 120 concerts a year, right? He was doing a whole lot at the time. I mean, he does a lot over the summer too. But just seeing how busy he was with like, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I can. I remember thinking like, oh, I think I can manage this. Mm. But this is a lot already. Mm-hmm. You know, like he has a small studio, not a whole lot of obligations, um, in within that, I, I don't think, you know, not having a doctorate program currently where he's at UWM. And yet he's so busy going back and forth. Like mm. there's very little time for anything else. It seems like at least. Um, yeah. But to me, I was like, oh, that's a really great balance. And anything more than that, like you can't have your studio. You can't give your attention to people that really want it. And of course, everyone there is like really, I think everyone's very thankful to be there and, uh, I was like, okay, that's that's pretty clear to me. I, I don't want to just perform and do nothing else. Mm-hmm. It's too much, too much. Yeah, and it's also just, it can be unsavory. I remember watching, um, because I went to Menuhin school, I remember watching a documentary about Yehudi Menuhin, and it was one that was sort of nearer the end of his life, and he had a very prolific performance career, with the violin and had had since he was sort of first recognized as a star. And that was when he was five years old. I think he, well, he was playing before, but he debuted at the Hollywood Bowl aged five or something crazy. And then had subsequently had an 80 year long career of of performing. And it was this interview with a Dutch guy actually. And he'd asked him, what has your life been like, like that? It's so extraordinary. And he said, I just have always felt really vindictive towards people because I never have a true interaction with any person Mm. I meet. And I'm jealous of everybody who's been able to do something else. Obviously, as you get older, and as you sort of climb your way a little bit to peak up to the you know the different levels of the ladder I've been really lucky to talk to a few people who are really really quite famous and have celebrity status and the overwhelming feeling from those conversations is that what you think you're after in the beginning is not what you're after at all and once you have the recognition Mm. and the success and the money and the fame and all of that sort of falls away and you realize that all of those things are a kind of unwelcome symptom of something else you were searching for. But by that point, it's too late. And I mean, obviously that sounds very um, very bleak and depressing, but I think we really, before we start going after something that really does take so much away from you, we really need to sit back and wonder what, what it is that we're after. Because I think a lot of us are after recognition, not because we set out to get recognition, but just because we feel that we're owed it, because we lack it, or during Mm. our study, or we feel that we've been downtrodden, we want to prove someone wrong. I think you are such a singular being, and your 
your existence is sort of limited to your own bubble. You should never do anything because of something somebody else has said, because otherwise you find yourself in just a really unpleasant situation. Yeah, I, I think I, I think um, you're, you're right with that. And then also the things that you want to do in the beginning can be so misguided, even if it's from the truest, not like, oh, I want to be the best in the world. But mm. I remember when I first started um, like falling in love with classical guitar, I was thinking, Actually, even before that, when I played electric guitar, I remember thinking, oh, if I can just figure out a way to like stay afloat with this, mm-hmm. like make make a, make enough to where I can pay rent and these types of things, then that will be perfect. Mm-hmm. That's like, that is super ideal. And then, you know, now thinking that like some of the easiest ways to make um, a living playing or doing music at least is not the way that I would want to live. In fact, there's some things in the music industry that I would rather do, not not do at all. Like I'd rather do a different industry and just play guitar um, than do just that, right? Like one of those things would be teaching. If I, I love teaching, but if I had to teach 40, 50 hours a week, mm-hmm. it would drain all of my energy and it would drain any creative thought I have on the instrument. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, true 40 hours of like private lessons, yeah. not like a 40, like not like a university job type of thing where the hours come from a many different things. I, I, I can see how that can easily slip into something where it's like, wow, actually, I might rather be um, a coffee roaster or something mm-hmm. and then play guitar and, and tour and, you know, play those concerts and. You know, the, your, your ideas shift as you get older. I'm sure if, if we were to do the same interview five or ten years from now, mm. it would be a different set of goals. I but. completely, um, I concur with what you're saying. It's fascinating, really, that what you start doing ends up being so completely different from what you end up yeah. doing. And it's such a strange world we live in because it almost feels like we've made this rule book to make ourselves feel like there's something to follow. I think I actually think that rule book was made with good intentions. I think it was, mm-hmm. it started off as this kind of handy guide, you know, we'll create these competitions where we'll give young people the opportunity to come and play and then win a load of money or a new instrument mm-hmm. that's much better than the one they have now, or we'll give them 20 concerts. That I think was started with absolutely fantastic intentions let's give someone a leg up let's help them over that wall that's really difficult to climb because you know god knows that we found it difficult to get over the other side and then now we've kind of put this like we've attributed this sort of unbalanced importance to that rule book we do competitions Mm -hmm. now for competition's sake often um we don't really think of it as something that's going to help us get ahead. It's just a way to make a little bit of money and get a bit of prestige and move on to the next one. And I think that that's not because of the people who are doing it. It's just because of it all, you know, because so many people thought, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And now there's a kind of competition culture standing alone. Yeah, it's a culture of its own. And it's super strange. I think many of those things started with good intentions, but we just, I think we have such a religious way of looking at what we do, that we've followed this rule book religiously and we now have a kind of a rule book standing on its own that's just a facade and it's unclear for a lot of people that, for instance, if you would take the exact same steps as Christopher Parkening did, you can see I'm obviously already wearing the turtleneck, but if I took all of the same steps as he did, 
I still wouldn't get where he is. And it's not because I'm not good enough. It's just because we're different people and we're encountering different people. We have different propulsions, different motivations. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. This is actually the first conversation that I've allowed to go on for so long. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's completely my fault for being so inspired by you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Likewise. But I will ask you the third question because otherwise we'll never we'll never end. Well, this is a perfect tie-in, actually. So. What is a lesson that you are currently working on? The thing that I'm working on internally the most right now is vulnerability. Because it's something that I, when I look back, I really appreciated about when I first started classical guitar. I was uploading these videos to YouTube about starting my classical guitar journey. I called them progress videos. And I I think my first video was within a few months of me starting playing classical guitar. And sometimes I uh, uploaded like every week or so often. And then later, as I was more aware that people were finding out about the videos, I I would sort of go into like this sort of recluse state and and want to improve before showing my next one. But then I was like, wait, that that wasn't the mm-hmm. idea of it in the first place. It was, it was to share the process. And that's um, sharing this entire journey has been something of interest to me from, from the very start. And it's such a struggle to be vulnerable and to talk about things from, you know, it's one of those things like the more you learn, the less you know. And the more you find out, uh, you realize, well, I could be wrong about this. Who am I to spread that kind of information? Or my perspective, it might be different in, in, a, in a year. And that's that's something I'm always working on. And um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always trying to fight. I think I'm at a turning point now where I'm I'm wanting to share more again. But it's it's so tricky. I'm, I'm wondering what you have to think about that, Rosie. I think it is tricky when you Mm. have an opportunity to share and document a lot of what you do in your life. I struggle with that too. I struggle is maybe not the right word, but it is difficult to find a balance between what you feel is sharing and what you feel is oversharing. And it's difficult because if you want, especially with online, if you want your online presence to be authentic and for it to be something that's you, you sort of need to leave it being the the real vulnerable sides of you. Actually, I think what people respond to best and what is best in the sense of sort of protecting yourself is to sort of business plan your way out of it and really draw your boundaries very um, strictly between what you'll share or not. And I don't just mean online as well. I mean, right. I think in general, being vulnerable with people is something that musicians should do a lot more. There's this sort of irony in the whole concept of uh, being vulnerable, which is that when you're, uh, if if you're introvert, at least I, I believe I am, when you're being vulnerable, it feels like it's this death of, of, of your ego for a moment. But then when you look at it, like say say you share something about that experience online, you look at it through the lens of another, then it can look like you're, seeking attention in some ways or seeking something self-serving say for the example of like you want to share an honest video about how you're playing guitar right a part it's this whole it's this whole thing of like edited videos versus unedited videos and that Mm -hmm. if you're if you're trying to be vulnerable 
um, and you're saying, hey, you know, I, I wanted to release this because it's not it's not edited and it feels more true to myself, maybe to others they think, oh, well, you're just you're just bragging about how well you can play it without editing. And there's this, that, that's like a, that's still a poor example, but there's so many areas where you think you're doing one thing and it can be interpreted another way. And especially when we have access to a really large audience, there's always a certain percentage of people that feel exactly opposite mm-hmm. of what you intended um, or misread, completely misread, not just your intentions, but maybe even something you wrote, <laughs> you know? There's so much there. It's it's sometimes it's really mm-hmm. difficult to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. and there's this aspect of having to ignore um, some aspect of of that to in order to share. Mm. I, th- I guess the question I would pose to you, which is something I ask when people say that they think humility is really important, is just defining vulnerability and what that means to you. Do mm. you have a clear definition? What are the facets that go into that for you? I don't know if I have a a definition for it, but what it means to me, vulnerability, is that you have this willingness to share that 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 trumps your doubts. That you are you're being vulnerable to share something, even if it means you you have this you have this doubt about its quality or about its meaning. And that's so you know, you know, I peers and colleagues write to me about, and I'm sure to you too, about this similar thing about sharing videos. And there's a lot of people that want to get out there and start making videos. And I have a feeling that that vulnerable part of it is, is what stops people from sharing. You know, it's not just your playing. It's not just your musical musicality. It's about the way it looks in the room. It's about the sound quality. It's about, it's, it's about the caption. It's about who's watching it. There's so many things that you have to clear in order to share something. You know, mm. uh, there's so many ideas. And that's not just online. That's in a performance. That's um, that's telling uh, the story that is really meaningful to you on stage that it may, may not paint you in the right light. I feel like the truest things that I share are when I'm being vulnerable. And I, I guess that that reflects on the concert stage, too. When I'm being vulnerable and I'm, I'm taking risks, I think that's some of the most or not just me, but anyone, I I think that's some of the most interesting experiences that you can have. And that's Mm -hmm. the best conversations I have too, is when everyone's being vulnerable and they're not worried about their ego. Um, It's the same thing on stage is like, you you hear intent and emotional connection so much more when there's an aspect of vulnerability there. Like you said, there's Mm -hmm. different translations, there's different words for it. It's not about worrying that someone's going to attack me. Um, it's more it's more of just thinking about the way I want to share and what I want to share. It's a difficult thing to decide what to do when you want to have this. Uh, what you desire is a is is a career of bl- blending the two worlds together of like sharing not just your music but mm. um, things that you're thinking about, things that you're feeling, things you're struggling with, things that you're sharing successes without it being viewed in a overly boastful way, right? I already think that it's quite vulnerable to share that you're working on trying to be more vulnerable first. Um, <laughs> then I succeeded, Rosie. I tricked your audience. <laughs> okay. you did it. <laughs> um, done. Next. Um, That's right. I wish the sun-
this episode of Fret Not. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review and subscribe to be the first to hear each new episode as soon as it's released. Join me in two weeks' time where I'll be talking to Michael Chapdelin about probably the most famous masterclass to ever take place in the guitar world. Thank you.